Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this week's episode, I'm joined by George Ashton III, Managing Director of Strategic Investments at LISC, or the Local Initiative Support Corporation. LISC is a national CDFI founded in 1979, which has invested over $22 billion in economic development projects over the years. George recently helped launch LISC's Black Economic Development Fund. Seeded with $25 million investments from both Netflix and Costco, the fund will take both a direct and indirect investment strategy, directly through investments in Black-led businesses and anchor institutions, and indirectly through working with Black-led financial institutions. During our conversation, we talk about the growth of CDFIs and their role in economic development, the economic incentive for corporations to help close the racial wealth gap, and how other corporations can put their money where their mouth is with regard to racial equity. Let's jump into the conversation. George, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Tell me about LISC and and the work that you do there. So... Lisk is a, a huge company, and so I'll just break it down from the top. About half of the shop is grants and programmatic work, and that's sourcing grants from the federal government and philanthropy, et cetera, to do really programmatic and supportive work for the communities and the folks we care about in these communities. The other side of the house is really investments, um, and historically has been tax equity investments and lending off of our balance sheet. And the group that I'm, I've started and I'm running is off-balance sheet impact funds. And so these are standalone funds that are often place-based funds. And most of them are loan funds still, but some of them involve equity as well. And so it's enabled us to get a bit more creative with how we're helping these communities and also how we're getting folks involved. So traditionally, this has been really working with like CRA banks and foundations. And now we're able to get corporations involved and companies and, and healthcare companies and insurance companies, et cetera, to come to the table with with place-based funds. It's a community development financial institution, right? So you're, you lend into low to moderate income communities, particularly, right? That's correct. LISC is one of the nation's largest CDFIs, community de- development financial institutions. Um, we've lent into underinvested and underserved communities for the last 40 years to the tune of about $20 billion, leveraged wow. to $6 billion over that time frame and everything from playgrounds to grocery stores to housing to schools it's easier to talk about what we haven't done than what we have done um, but all of that's necessary for those ecosystems to sort of grow and survive and nurture the talent within those communities and can you provide a little context on on the history of cdfis and, and kind of the role that they play in in economic development absolutely so cdfis really stand in the gap between what banks can provide to these communities and true just straight philanthropy, right? Mm -hmm. So, and they were probably invented, really created for two reasons. One is to bridge the gap between those two parts of the economy for businesses and real estate investments, et cetera. The other is just scale. So as you start to go beyond philanthropy, you can get to more scale when you're offering investments and investment returns to investors. And this really sort of corresponds with what you've seen in impact investing in general, which is for the longest time, investors had a, a giveaway wallet and an investment wallet. Mm-hmm. Impact investing is somewhere between the two. Um, and so CDFIs, uh, they're great tools for that. They 
don't have the regulations that prevent banks from doing certain things, but they do have many of the same standards that provide investors the comfort to get to scale, right? So that we can mm-hmm. do things um, that are bigger um, than maybe philanthropy can do on its own. Lisk is a unique version of that in that we are really a combination of local CDFIs, which are great because they have local presence in the areas that they're trying to fix. And as we know, there's not a one fix all solution for all the communities with sort of a national presence as well in Chicago and in New York and in D.C. um, to sort of bring some of that more financial sophistication to the table. So so you kind of serve as like a connector between these big financial institutions or, or corporations that want to invest in these communities, but don't have like the know-how to do so. So you, you kind of tell them what businesses and what areas are needed in each of these individual communities that you operate in. That's absolutely true. And, and, and it may not even be the know-how, it may be the flexibility, right? As I mm-hmm. said before, banks are not, are, have a lot of regulations that keep them from being flexible as depository institutions. They're a different standard um, in terms of what they can and can't do. And so, yeah, that's part of it. Also, in terms of telling them what the communities need, we are a channel for listening to the community in the first place. And so our local office has spent a lot of time talking to the community, understanding what it needs and translating that into what's available and what makes sense for either grant deployment and programmatic stuff or or investments. Mm -hmm. And how did you get into this work? So I was uh, in a circuitous path um, <laughs> to come through finance and then housing and Fannie Mae and then running my own company and sort of the impact investing or sustainability space with Soul Systems, which was a solar energy company I co-founded with a business partner, Yuri Horowitz. That company did very well and we had you know, some exits and I just decided that I wanted to do more to give back to my community. And so there are really two paths to go down in doing that. There was venture capital for entrepreneurs of color, and then there was this concept of CDFI. I like that CDFIs can provide a, a wider scope of systematic change to communities, given the size and breadth of what they can offer. And so that's how I sort of ended up in the CDFI space, is just being really excited about the mission focus, but also the specification and the scale at which they can actually deploy solutions. But when did you decide that impact investing was the best tool to to give back to these these communities that you wanted to work in how did how did that decision come about why not start a nonprofit or, or something yeah I thought a lot about um, my tool set and how it best interfaced with the needs mm-hmm. of the community and I'm definitely a big picture person and sort of a process oriented person and I'm also uh, just, I I think in the terms of investments and I love talking to investors. And, and so I was thinking about like, should I be on the ground level trying to really help people and help businesses one by one, or would I be more effective at a higher level, sort of bringing capital to the market in general and sort of pulling capital from other parts of the market? I'm glad I chose to be the latter. And that's sort of where I am now, which is really sort of reaching the frontier of what is considered an impact investment and who should be involved in impact investing and Mm -hmm. new people into the space. That is incredibly exciting to me because I think we all need to be a part of this for reasons we'll get into shortly. And so, yeah, I just sort of matched my talents and skills with what I thought I'd be most useful as a tool in this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you mentioned bringing new people into the impact investing fold and one of the new buckets I would say that, that you're working with is with corporations, right? You, you recently launched a, 
a black economic development fund that was seeded by a couple a couple large corporations. Can you tell me a little bit about about the launch of that fund? Absolutely, it's it's an incredibly empowering story. Aaron Mitchell um, is a gentleman at Netflix, and uh, I think birthed the idea that Netflix should take some portion of its five billion dollars in capital on hand and actually put a portion of that with black banks in order to help with some of the racial equity challenges that we were seeing surface as a result of police brutality and on George mm-hmm. Floyd, you know, the things that were happening. You know, and the CEO of Netflix apparently, you know, liked that idea. The treasurer, uh, Shannon Athey, liked the idea as well. And so they really um, nurtured it and came to us with the concept. They figured out that deposits were not in of themselves that useful to banks. They're actually liabilities. And many of these banks are limited by their equity and their ability to grow assets. Um, so we thought long and hard about how we could be helpful to these banks and to the Black community as a whole. And so we have both with the fund, the Black Economic Development Fund, it's a $250 million you know, target raise fund. We have really a direct and indirect strategy. So direct investments in the communities and Black-led businesses and with Black-led anchor institutions, um, and then indirectly uh, working with Black-led financial institutions through a combination of helping them grow their loan portfolios, getting them access to equity, and also giving them some deposits as well. So we really are hitting the problem from a different, a few different sides. It's super exciting. We just had another mm-hmm. a commitment letter yesterday. Nice. Uh, Congratulations. More coming. And so, and this is what's new. It's a new frontier, getting treasuries to think about how to utilize their cash in ways that can be impactful is new, right? And an exciting frontier. Yeah, I think um, one of the most exciting parts about this to me is that there hasn't been a, traditionally there hasn't been an obvious place for corporations to plug into impact investing, I would say. And this is what you're doing is is very much that. How do you see this evolving as as more and more corporations start to to hopefully put their money where their mouth is in terms of of racial equity? Yeah, I, the way I see it evolving um, and the way I want to see it evolve is really towards a business case for why it makes sense. It just reminds me of what happened with the sort of environmental movement, right? And initially, you know, only individuals who were tree huggers were involved and then eventually <laughs> grew to being a scientific issue. And then it was cool for certain companies to actually be green and, you know, sun chips and whatever else sort of became like, you know, green was cool. And then it became actually something that companies needed to work into their strategic plans uh, for their boards to understand what the risks were of not actually having success in the environmental space. I want to see racial wealth equity follow that same path, right? And so I think what we've seen is as a result of sort of the social justice issues we're having, we're in a period now where many companies and their leaders and their um, employees are demanding to know where their company stands. And this is a way of showing the company showing where it stands on these issues, um, which I think is, is critical for those companies. And then we're moving also now in, in some thought pieces and some understanding of what it means to have a wealth gap racial or otherwise in this country and what that means for the consumer base. And so as you look at these companies that have just grown in tremendous in size, it's really about market size, not market share. And so making sure that there's a robust middle class that can buy their services and and products 
is critical. And so that wealth gap is a real actual uh, and macroeconomic threat to the growth of our economy and the largest companies in that economy. So that's where I want to see this head. And I think as we head in that direction and people get that we sort of all rise and fall together as a country, we'll see more people decide that this is not only a, a good place to invest for moral and injustice reasons, but also to maintain the size of the consumer base in the country. Yeah. So you're you're saying there's both a, a demand from stakeholders for them to be involved from the employees and, and customers, et cetera, but, but also a financial case that, that you're seeing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's sort of best exemplified with an anecdote, you know, at some point, who can afford to buy the next iPhone? Right. So if <laughs> people fall below the poverty line and, and credit gets extended as far as it can go, the amount of folks that are available to buy the next iPhone is just smaller than it was, you know, 10 years ago. And so you must, we, we know for all kinds of reasons, we must keep a robust middle class. We must keep economic mobility in this country. It's just all critical to the welfare of everyone, particularly large corporations. Mm -hmm. So how are you seeing these corporations working with LISC? And what are you doing to help bring about that robust middle class and to close the, the racial wealth gap? Yeah, the, the response from the, from the corporations has been pretty tremendous in this time. Through a, you know, the two main stimuli for, for engagement and interaction has been COVID and then the racial equity challenges that we've had, George Floyd, et cetera. So mm -hmm. those two things together, we've seen tremendous response from banks, but also from corporations uh, to step in. And I think the really the strategy is really twofold. It's to to preserve uh, what already exists, uh, and so what gains these communities have made, the the businesses that are in these communities, often minority led businesses, the wealth that they've created. When there is a situation like COVID, those folks who are in those positions are often the first to be wiped out. And so <laughs> you've seen articles about the significant decline in the number of Black businesses as a result of COVID. That's wiping out years and years and years of work. So I think preservation is the first issue. And so we've raised tons of money in grants, actually, from corporations. A lot of companies and corporations have, have partnered with us on the grant side to get money out and into these communities to help these businesses. And then also on the loan side, right? So providing loans as well. The next part of that is actually growing the population of businesses and the amount of economic development in these communities and that's where we get early stage business funding, um, some of what the Black Economic Development Fund will do in terms of uh, business transaction financing. So I think we have to preserve what we have and then grow some more on top of that. And that's sort of the two-step two strategy, I think, that corporations can step up to. So with the, the grant funding, again, LISC is kind of serving as like a, a, a broker, right? I mean, you're, you're taking in that grant funding and then you're, you're turning around and distributing it as grants into targeted businesses within the, the community? That's exactly right. And, and, and I wish it was as easy as being a broker. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's not the right terminology. Yeah, right? No, it, the... it's, what it, it's what it could be one day. But uh, today, it, it definitely involves, normally these grants are place-based and they're very specific with who they want the money to go to. Increasing that flexibility would be a good thing because then we could better match what the needs of the community are. So that's one plug I'll make for if you are thinking about getting involved and providing grant capital to these efforts, the, the more flexible you can make your capital, the better it is to address the actual need, which is what we're assessing from the community. But yeah, you know, getting the money out the door, tracking who it's going to, and then measuring the impact as a result, because we'd like to do as an industry is get better 
at this, right? And so you can't get better if not tracking your success. And so there's a lot of cost that goes in sort of tracking what happens with every grant as you put it out the door. In LA, we're working with the government and uh, some of their funds to get a ton of money out the door for small business recovery grants, thousands of, of grants. And so we'll be trying to track the effects of that on the economy uh, to make sure we're putting it in the right place. Yeah, we've we've started to see some of the PPP results in terms of the the racial disparities in in lending because much of that money went through some of these larger finance financial institutions that don't have as much knowledge about you know these these underserved communities traditionally. So you're trying to fill that gap and and make sure that that those businesses don't don't go out of business during this this challenging time. Yeah, and I think PPP great concept, uh, good notion. Its only fault is that it it probably worked well within the well-worn trail of traditional finance, right? Mm-hmm. So banks provided PPP to the customers that are they know the best, right, and that they thought needed it the most. Um, and that just leaves out the unbanked, the underbanked, you know, uh, and, and smaller businesses and minority-led businesses as well. So we are definitely in the business of pushing those funds. Um, out. We're partnering in New York with Calvert and uh, CRF from the New York Ford Loan Fund, which is working out really well to get loans out the door to minority-led businesses and non-minority-led businesses as well in New York. Mm-hmm. When I think of of CDFIs, I think maybe wrongly about like mostly lending into these communities. But you mentioned like off-balance sheet funds and and some other sort of innovative ways in which you're helping these communities that that. LISC has served for the past 40 years. What are some of those other ways that, that you're deploying capital into these communities? Yeah, so, and I think when you think about the categories for how we're deploying capital in these communities, you can think of it as grants, you can think of it as services, you can think of it as lending, but even within lending, there are different types of lending, right? So we know that there's, there's you know standard lending and then there's credit enhanced lending, uh, which means that you can be way more flexible with the credit box and who you can lend to. Um, and then outside of lending, um, we have equity products. And so we've been working in some of our funds with preferred equity, which is very patient capital where we do well if, if the project does well. And frankly, that's a big thing that these communities need. It's often the most challenging because, you know, on a competitive basis, you know, equity is the riskiest investment to make and requires the most faith in what you're doing. But if the way that we got into this issue was sort of a long absence of equity and investment in these communities, the way we get out will take some time as well. So debt doesn't often have a whole lot of patience for turning things around and pulling the community back in the direction. Equity does. So if there's a push for anything. I think it's definitely for more patient capital these communities are full of talent and they, they will do exceptionally well, but they do need the same patience, you know, that other communities get with respect to capital. Yeah. The time horizon is, is much different when you're talking about early stage equity. So you, you mentioned something earlier that like deposits were sometimes a challenge for, for these banks to take on, which kind of surprised me. I, I thought that, you know, one of the things that, that like a tangible activity that, that, the average person could do is banking with, you know, some of these black owned or, or native banks. Um, I think there was, there was an op-ed in the New York times today, something like, you know, want to be an ally, use a black owned bank or what, what do you mean when you said that deposits can sometimes be a, a challenge for the banks? 
Yeah, I think that there's probably two different ways to think about deposits. There's um, retail deposits, which are from okay. individuals. Oftentimes, what's beneficial to the bank about that is not the deposit in of itself, but maybe the fact that that's a new customer for the bank. So maybe they get a credit card, they get a mortgage, they get some other things that are going with that deposit account. Deposits are liabilities to the bank. So if you think of yourself as on the other side of the ledger as the bank itself, when you take a deposit, you basically you owe the customer the money back at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And you're paying them some interest on it. And what's challenging about that debt too is you don't know when they're going to ask for it back. They can ask for it back whenever they want. So what you can put it in is oftentimes pretty short term on a one-to-one basis. Obviously, you can sort of manage those if you have really a lot of deposits. So deposits, while they are useful on a retail basis, what we saw as a part of this movement initially was a lot of efforts to try to put large deposits from institutions at these banks. And only a small amount of banks can actually benefit from that because, again, they need, when you give them a positive money, they need, they need a place to actually invest that money, right? And so if they have potentials for loan growth, then great, they can go invest that money. But many of them, because they have been shrinking or are smaller in size, may not have as more robust a pipeline for finding those loans to invest that money into. Ideally, you take that cheap deposit and you put it out the door as a loan at a higher interest rate and the bank makes money in between. The other thing is, of course, the equity on their balance sheet limits how much they can do in terms of loans and assets. So if their equity is sort of limiting their assets, they can't grow their assets. So they, yeah, the extra deposit's not that useful. This is not the case for all the banks, but for the large majority is a consideration for sure. So that's why in the fund, we've just sort of thought about this more comprehensively is how do you help all sides of, of the bank and not just throwing deposits at them. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of, of a business or somebody that you've worked with in these communities and, and how this support has, has helped them? Yeah, so I, I'll speak um, more generally to the financing support that we can generally provide as a TDFI. The fund is actually waiting for its first close, so we haven't put any money out the door yet. Um, I think our first close will be in mid to late October. With respect to the types of businesses and business transactions, I'll speak to a transaction we did in D.C. in Anacostia. And Anacostia is a historically black neighborhood that's across the river from D.C., subject to fairly concentrated gentrification pressures because D.C. is growing and people are looking for places to live near the city. For many years, folks were putting just affordable housing in Anacostia, and the folks in Nicosia decided that they de- didn't need more affordable housing. What they needed was, were jobs and economic activity over there. So this developer, the Minkiti Group that we worked with, actually took a chance and, and worked on a mixed-use commercial building um, over in that neighborhood. Happened to be an opportunity zone as well. So the List DC office um, provided them with a pre-development loan, which is a loan that you secure prior to construction, which is where banks get involved. So again, that gap between philanthropy and banks, right? So a pre-development loan was provided. We had the project itself, because of its impact focus, needed some new market tax credits to make sense. So our new market tax credit group, NMSC, provided tax credits. And then LIFT itself, through my group, provided an opportunity zone investment on the equity side to help that project move forward. So that's a way that the, a lot of the list family was involved in that project. We're very proud of it. There is a Black-owned business, uh, IT business. They're going to do training for local community. It's just a win in about eight different ways. That was really exciting for us. So this fund, because it's a Black-led developer, would participate in that. And we're looking at some additional transactions that are similar. 
to help those projects get past that sort of gap. And why does that gap exist? So we were talking about this uh, earlier, the lack or boxing out of the black community from income and wealth building for so long has meant that friends and family money and the network of wealth that would normally be available to help most developers cross that chasm is not available to the black community. So we need to find solutions to help fill that void so that we can get those businesses the financing they need to get to the next stage where banks can step in and be helpful. And so that's part of what we're doing in real estate. And we were talking about ways to do that in venture capital as well, the first time fund managers, um, mm-hmm. businesses also. So to, to go back to the the corporates, if if moving some of this cash that they're sitting on into into these banks is not as as impactful as maybe I would have I would have thought, what are some other ways that, that you're seeing them become involved? And by them, do you mean corporations or do you I mean, mean corporate? I mean corporates, yeah, in, in impact investing, yeah. particularly targeting the the racial inequities that, that we were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously we have folks that are investing in our fund as a way of being more comprehensively involved with black banks. We've seen an, an increase in the number of corporations that are investing in black-led venture funds. We invested in a black-led venture fund in Atlanta called the Fearless Fund recently, which is run by uh, women of color investing in businesses run by women of color. And they've had some corporations actually step up after our investment and also, also look to invest in those funds. So corporations are trying to find ways to sort of get involved in this space and to sort of be uh, helpful to the cause. To your point earlier, it's not obvious and there aren't tons of obvious ways for them to be mm-hmm. involved. And they have their own limitations, but hopefully we can take this uh, initial movement and you know turn it into something that's more longer term. Yeah. Is that a strategic investment or is that just them saying that, you know, they, they have the flexibility to invest in like a seed stage fund that's investing in women of color? I think it's both, actually. Yeah. So if you look at the, the metrics or, or the information available around the performance of, of funds led by women of color and businesses mm-hmm. that are women of color, they're actually outpacing on a sort of alpha basis uh, investments in non-diverse founders. And some of that could be the cream of the crop sort of scenario, right? Where because this space is so absent of capital that the people that you're finding are incredibly resilient and have been able to build businesses with very little access to capital. And so when you give them some access, they all of a sudden knock it out the park, right? And so, you know, that I think is a really important part of this in terms of finding alpha within your fund. So I think it's both a smart business move, but also an important signaling to the marketplace about, you know, the viability of these types of funds. Yeah, it's, it seems like a, it, it's sort of a callous term, but it seems like a market inefficiency, right? I mean, such a small, it, I think it's like 3% of venture goes to women and 1% to people of color and to women of color, it's a fraction of a percent, yet they're yeah. the most entrepreneurial demographic in terms yeah. of starting businesses. And, and it, it's, um, you know, it's not surprising that those funds do really well. Yeah. And I think, I think you're exactly right. I think you're picking from a very resilient class of entrepreneurs and you're mm-hmm. trying them access to capital, and then you're surprised they did well, and it probably shouldn't be that surprising. So, right. So, what can people do to support these communities? If you don't have a a fund that you're running or a, a you know corporate balance sheet to to work off of, what can the average person do if they want to support these causes? 
I've been thinking a lot about this, particularly with with racial wealth equity. There is a group called Bank Black that's been looking at the services offered by black banks around the country. And they have a really interesting perspective on it, which is it is you know often hard for um, some black banks to compete in terms of online banking, online deposits, and sort of to be your like working, operating everyday bank. But um, oftentimes they have very competitive individual services like a mortgage or a credit card or a savings account, something that is a bit more stationary and may not require as much sort of everyday interactions of online presence, et cetera. I think the average person, I'm thinking of this myself, could support these banks by participating in, in some way, shape or form, even if it's not your primary banking institution. You'd be surprised at what you find there. I think that's an excellent way for people to get involved. It shores up the quality of the banks, you know, to have a credit card that you, you know, put some expenses on at one of these banks is, is a great way of, of helping the banks as well. So I definitely am supportive of Bank Black, the group, and they have some interesting products that are available for folks. So that's what I would point to in terms of the everyday person trying to be trying to be helpful. And the the basic argument is that, that I mean, if if you're banking in a with a black owned bank, they're taking that money and reinvesting it into the communities they're working in, right? I mean, that's the basic concept or the the, the really simplified way of, of looking yeah. at it. And it's absolutely true. I mean, a lot of businesses in these communities that are Black-led businesses are banking with Black-led banks, at least for some portion of their banking, if not all of it initially, right? They expand and grow to bigger banks as the businesses get much bigger, absolutely, um, with some loyalty to their original bank as well. But yeah, it's absolutely critical for access to these capital. And, I, you know, you can call it racism. You can call it whatever you want to call it. I just call it people like to lend to people that look and, and talk and, and act like them. Right. And mm-hmm. so there's a natural selection and it's naturally harder for folks that don't look like you to get loans from you. Uh, long story short. So that's why black banks are so critical because they provide that sort of uh, comfort and access to the, to financing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure, I mean, to go back to the, the PPP discussion, I'm sure if you looked at the percentage of that funding that went into entrepreneurs of, of color, um, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's several times coming out of, you know, what white led financial institutions are providing. Um, yeah, and it's, it's about being intentional. It's about your network. It's about who, who you bank with. Because when we looked at our numbers, I think we were north of 60% in terms of MWBE PPP recipients, which is, you know, maybe the reverse of where, you know, large banks were. So it's just about where you're focused and who your network is. And so finding that is critical. And this gets back to why, right? I think, again, we need to get uh, more of the country involved in the economic growth of the country. Too many people, black, uh, white, brown, or indifferent in different parts of this country that are just left out of what's happening in terms of the growth of the country, and it's going to hurt us eventually. So this is part of that larger mandate for getting everybody involved. Yeah, and something like like getting your mortgage with a black lead bank, like you mentioned, is it, you know you're getting a competitive interest rate, and it's something that you can do that that has a a huge a huge implication on these communities. So to, to go back, one of the, the, the things that you mentioned that LISC provides is accountability, right? You're, you're tracking the success of these funds and the, in the work that you're doing. What, to, to take it back to the Black Economic Development Fund, what's the goal of that fund? How are you measuring, you know, how are you determining what success is 
Um, what, what, what's next? You said you have your first close coming up next month. What's the, what's the plan? Yeah. So the plan is to get the money out into the community as, as responsibly and as quickly as we can with as much impact as we can. And so I think the question is, what is, what is impact for the black economic development? Mm -hmm. And the answer is some of the old and some of the new. So some of the old is thinking about, you know, affordable units built and classroom or, or educational dollars spent. Um, dollars spent with biz, black-led businesses, you know, jobs created or maintained. Those are more traditional standards. We're also thinking about like money multiplier effects. So one of the great things about working within a bank or with a bank is, you know, the money can sort of multiply in terms of its cycling through the bank and, and being lent out to other people. So looking at the loan growth for the banks that we partner with and the diversification of their loan portfolio and the health of their loan portfolios. All of that is exciting sort of new frontier for ways to measure our impact, not only directly on the community, but indirectly on the health of the institutions that support that community as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? I think we've covered a lot of it. I, I love the point you make about where does this go next? One of the biggest things I'm thinking about is, is this a, a movement or a moment? And I think mm -hmm. we hope it's a movement but we need to act like it's a moment, right? And so if you take that moment, how do you extend its effect on the communities and provide different outcomes? Because we know that the police brutality and, and uh, the situations you see with George Floyd, et cetera, on TV are really symptoms of a bigger problem, which is you know, policing, a lack of economic opportunity, uh, poor education, whatever, what, you know, you can tie it back to so many things that create that situation. So if we don't want to turn on the TV in five or 10 years and see that again, then we have to fix those underlying causes that created that issue. Um, some of it is obviously improving, you know, police procedures, et cetera, but that's not all of it, right? So the economics of those areas and the e economic opportunities offered to those communities is is probably where the the hammer meets the nail um, and critical to fixing that. So this is a part of that. And this is a part of uh, fixing all of that, which will be to the benefit of corporations, individuals, you know, political, uh, you know, issues, et cetera. So i uh, love to see the country come back together. And I think part of that is the wealth and income gap is sort of divided us as well. So mm -hmm. that is the context for what we're trying to do here. George, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with George Ashton III of LISC. As always, if you're interested in learning more about LISC or any of the topics discussed, you can check out our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net. If you enjoyed the podcast and the types of conversations that we have, you should check out our upcoming conference, SOCAP Virtual, from October 19th to 23rd. We'll have a number of speakers at the conference who have been guests on the podcast in the past, including Joy Anderson, Beth Bafford, Casey Vanderstrick, Fran Siegel, and, and many, many more. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.